Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, December 3rd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First, Georgetown virologist Angela Rasmussen joins us to break down AstraZeneca's confusing COVID-19 vaccine data and what they might mean for the future of the pandemic. Next, longtime healthcare investor Adam Koppel calls in to offer some predictions on how 2021 will play out in biotech. And finally, a non-COVID lightning round with the latest in hematology, a coup for AI and biology, and a breakthrough in aging research. But first, a word from our sponsor. Support for today's podcast comes from Pharma CCX, whose technology allows pharma and payers to negotiate, price, settle, and manage complex agreements more efficiently. Think of Pharma CCX like an uber-sophisticated dating app. We have technology that lets payers and pharma digitally negotiate through undisclosed criteria until conditions are met that are acceptable to all sides. To learn more, check out our case study from Sweden at pharmaccx.com. That's P-H-A-R-M-A-C-C-X dot com. The United Kingdom has become the first country in the world to approve the coronavirus vaccine developed by Pfizer and BioNTech. The rollout will start. The UK made world history this week by being the first government to clear a COVID-19 vaccine for use following a phase three clinical trial. The news led to questions about why the FDA is taking so comparatively long and also to criticisms from elsewhere in Europe that the UK is perhaps moving too fast. And we'll get to that. But first, we want to talk about some other recent news out of the UK. The head-scratching results for that country's crown jewel vaccine effort from Oxford University and partner AstraZeneca. There are confusing results from two different dosing regimens of the vaccine. A lower dose was 90% effective in preventing the disease, while the higher dose was only 62% effective. So you might be wondering, how did this happen? We were similarly confused, and so we consulted an expert. Dr. Angela Rasmussen is a virologist at the Georgetown University Center for Global Health Science and Security, and she joins us to help. Angie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about these AstraZeneca data. It's a two-dose vaccine, and it was tested two different ways. Some patients got a half-strength dose followed by a full dose, which is where the 90% efficacy comes from. And then the others got two full doses, which led to 62% protection. In biological terms, what do you think might have happened? Well, first, let me tell you what I know happened based on what AstraZeneca has discussed with the media, that the half-dose regimen that ended up being more efficacious was actually a mistake in calculating what was supposed to be just another group of patients receiving the the full two doses. So as many things in science, that was a, a happy mistake as that resulted in more efficacious or greater vaccine efficacy than the original dosing regimen as written in the trial protocol. Where the 70% overall efficacy came in was when they basically averaged um, the results of both the the full dose regimen as well as the mistake half dose regimen. So that's kind of where that came in. It's very questionable as to whether that is a, a valid way of looking at that data. But it does suggest that maybe the half dose regimen uh, initially is better. And I think my hypothesis anyways, for the reason that that happened is that 
the AstraZeneca vaccine is what's called a viral vectored vaccine. So they use a different type of virus called a chimpanzee adenovirus um, that normally causes common cold type symptoms in chimpanzees, um, but it can still infect humans. They use that virus to express the spike protein from SARS coronavirus 2, which is what your immune system will then respond to. But because they're using a virus to actually do that, your body will also mount immune responses to that virus that is delivering the vaccine. So I think that by giving a full dose up front, the people who were given that dose responded both to the SARS coronavirus 2 spike protein as well as to the chimpanzee adenovirus vector. When they gave the second dose then, they had antibodies to the viral vector that the vaccine is using and that that wasn't then able to actually express the spike protein. So they probably got a good booster shot for chimpanzee adenovirus, but of course that's not what we're trying to elicit immunity against. So we eventually learned that the 90% figure is based on an analysis of far fewer volunteers than the 62% one, and that people in the former trial tended to be younger. Could those factors help explain the difference? Certainly. I mean, there are vaccines for which age um, is an important factor. I think, though, that probably this is more related to the sample sizes. The mistake that occurred resulted in far fewer participants getting that half-dose regimen. I'd be very interested to see if that were expanded to a larger group of trial participants, if the results would still be at 90% efficacy. So as you mentioned, the AstraZeneca vaccine uses the modified virus to deliver what's necessary to confer immunity. That The same is true for vaccines from Johnson & Johnson and a few other companies. So do these early data tell us maybe what to expect from those vaccines and maybe dampen expectations as to how effective they might be? Possibly. So maybe not for Johnson & Johnson, though, because if my hypothesis is correct that the first dose is causing immunity to the vector, the Johnson & Johnson adenovirus 26 vectored vaccine only requires a single dose. And that's what they're evaluating. So it may be that that vector immunity is not such a problem. However, that could be a problem down the road if that vaccine isn't particularly durable and you need to get a second shot. In China, there was another vaccine that was developed using an adenovirus 5 backbone, which is a very common uh, human pathogen that causes, again, common colds. They found that that vaccine was less effective in older people, and it may be because people already had immunity to adenovirus 5. They'd been living longer, so they had more opportunities to develop immunity to adenovirus 5, and therefore the vaccine wasn't as effective. So some of these things we'll have to find out as things go along. I suspect that this was also behind the decision to use two different adenovirus vectors for the Russian Sputnik V vaccine that they have developed. So by contrast, earlier data suggests that the COVID-19 vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer are about 95% effective, and they use a different technology. But like the AstraZeneca vaccine, they're designed to expose the immune system to that specific protein on the surface of SARS-CoV-2. So what do you think the difference in efficacy might tell us about these two different approaches? Well, I mean, I I frankly am a bit surprised at how efficacious the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are, pleasantly so. 
But mRNA vaccines are relatively untested technology in terms of having efficacy data. We know that they work in terms of being able to elicit antibodies, T-cell responses, all of the things that we've been hearing people talk about for the past 10 months. But we didn't actually know how protective they would be. So that was a pleasant surprise because I don't think we really knew what to expect. Those vaccines um, using mRNA technology don't have a virus um, to, to create issues with cross-reactive immunity that would make the vaccine less effective, but there have been questions about how long the mRNA can persist in the people who get vaccinated with it to actually make that protein to stimulate immune responses. And that's probably why they are not one-shot vaccines. One shot is not enough. You need to make sure that you're giving the immune system that secondary booster to make sure you can have reliable immunity. But it's really good news that they are as effective as they are, at least based on the trial data. When AstraZeneca's data first came out, Anthony Fauci said that they could create a societal dilemma. You know, if one vaccine, let's say, is 70 percent effective and two others are 95 percent effective, how do you decide who gets which one? How do you think the field should approach that question? Well, I think a lot of that will depend on what AstraZeneca actually intends to do in terms of submitting that data to regulatory agencies. So I'm not particularly worried about dilemmas that are at this point hypothetical. If they do submit and they are granted an EUA by the FDA, then I think that that does become an important dilemma. I think that the AstraZeneca vaccine might be most useful if they are able to take a little bit longer, optimize that half-dose regimen, and then potentially distribute that vaccine globally rather than for the U.S. market. Um, Because the AstraZeneca vaccine does have a big advantage in that regard, and that is that they can get that vaccine to many more places because it doesn't require that ultra-cold freezer storage that the mRNA vaccines do. So last and completely off-topic question. After the recent death of Jeopardy! host Alex Trebek, you tweeted a photo of your appearance on the show and, and shared some warm memories of him. You also mentioned that you lost in Final Jeopardy. And I was curious, do you remember the clue that took you out? Yes, I do, because Alex Trebek actually gave me a hard time about it. The question was, and I'm going to not say it verbatim, or the answer, I should say, was um, this company was taken off the S&P 500 in 2009 and was reinstated in 2014. And my answer was, what is AIG? AIG was taken off the S&P 500 in 2009, but it was reinstated in 2013, I think. Oh, I, I remember which part of the question I forgot. It was this big company was taken off the S&P 500. And Alex said afterwards, I thought that was a pretty easy question because the correct question was, what is GM? Um, and he said, you know, the big three automakers. Um, and so that big in the the clue was supposedly a really easy clue that was a giveaway. I wouldn't have gotten that right. I think it's an accomplishment you even got on Jeopardy. That's amazing. Yeah, the the process of getting on Jeopardy requires a lot of luck. It was, I think, almost two years after I had taken the initial test to get on Jeopardy that I actually filmed the episode. It's longer than it takes to develop a COVID vaccine. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was great. Oh, it's really my pleasure. Anytime. So the reaction to those AstraZeneca Oxford results seemed to be different based upon where you were when you heard them. In the United Kingdom, they were a cause for national celebration, and there were predictions that the vaccine could be given approval there before the end of the year. 
But in the U.S., there was a lot more hesitation. Operation Warp Speed Chief Advisor Mansef Slawi said this week that it's problematic that the reasons behind the 90% efficacy with one dosing regimen and 62% for the other aren't understood. Frankly, unless there is a very clear explanation based on facts and data of what's behind those two numbers, it's very likely that that package will not be sufficient for uh, an approval. I'll be the first one to say it, so I say it here. But of course, the FDA will make their own decision. And we should get the results from AstraZeneca's U.S. trial around the end of the year or in January. But until then, the U.K. may turn out to clear not just one, but two vaccines that the U.S. hasn't yet. Uh, Although the U.S. may greenlight Moderna's vaccine first, no doubt fueling the age-old debate over whether the FDA is too conservative or not conservative enough. And how important do you guys think the fact is that the U.K. approved this earlier than the U.S.? And all these questions that are being raised now about is the FDA going too slowly? What's taking them so long? Like, what are your takes on this? I mean, on the one hand, I feel like all of this will be lost to history if the difference between availabilities is only a few days when you consider that both countries, all countries in the world are dealing with the constrained supply of these vaccines. So the time in which you approve it is not that important when there's such a finite number of doses available. But I'm also receptive to people who point out that, you know, especially here in the United States, this pandemic is killing thousands of people every single day. And so it's an understatement to say time is of the essence of this matter. But I do kind of think that when we look back on this moment, we will not agree with the conservative MP who tweeted the other day that history will remember Britain as the, uh, you know, the pole position leader of this effort to stop the pandemic. It's also important to note that the FDA is holding an advisory panel that is going to look at and review the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, and that's being held on December 10th, one week from today. And so I'm really curious to see like what the details of that vaccine look like, particularly when it comes to the safety of the vaccine. You know, we, we've gotten sort of a top-line look at efficacy and safety, but I expect a lot more detail to come out at that FDA advisory panel meeting. So, you know, thinking about those data and kind of thinking about that versus the UK's just approval will be very interesting to watch next week. break from talking about COVID and vaccines. So for our next segment, we're going to change the subject to biotech and 2021. What will the year ahead look like for biotech and pharma companies and for the investors who finance the drugs they develop? Joining us to offer his outlook for 2021 is Adam Koppel. Adam is a longtime healthcare investor and industry executive. Four years ago, he co-founded Bain Capital Life Sciences, a Boston-based life sciences investment fund with more than $2 billion in assets under management. Adam, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So 2020 has been a crap year, except if you happen to run a private biotech startup and need to raise cash or go public. You know, for these folks, it's been like a nonstop party. So, Adam, why are investors pouring billions of dollars into biotech? And is there any sign that the money stops flowing in 2021? Adam, good question. I, I hadn't noticed. So there is capital going into our sector. Yes, no, there, there is a lot of capital going into our sector. And I and I think it's for good reason, mostly, but I think there is also a bit of hype in certain parts of the, of the biopharma and life sciences ecosystem. Uh, and I think there's a lot of liquidity. Uh, first of all, this is an area where uh, investors can find true value creation even during a pandemic when everyone is home alone working. 
Uh, clearly, and I know you guys have talked a lot about it, there's a lot of focus on COVID-related uh, solutions to the problem. But even outside of COVID, I think this has really given investors outside of the uh, life sciences people, the, the ninjas, so to speak, that are always doing it, an opportunity to see what the value creation is for patients and shareholders, and also the speed with which value can be created if you have a focused management team working on an important problem of unmet medical need. So I think that is part of the reason why we've seen such capital flow into the ecosystem. And frankly, I don't think there's anything special about, you know, December 2020 versus January 2021. I don't really expect there to be a dramatic shift as we turn the calendar. So at our Stat Summit last month, I uh, interviewed Bazad Agazadeh. You know, he's the portfolio manager at Avaro Capital. And Bazad expressed some concerns about all of that investment dollars that have been flowing into biotech. Of course, you know, he talked a little bit about valuations and and how those have kind of been widely skewed to the upside. But I thought more interesting, you know, he talked about the concern that there is kind of somewhat of an alarming dearth of experienced executives to run all of these new companies. I wonder if you had a take on that. And, you know, it, you know, is there a downside or a risk to all this money and new company creation? Well, I fully agree with what Pazad is saying. I think there's two points here. Number one, is there a hype in the system? Yes. Uh, but again, we don't invest in the overall sector. We invest in a particular set of investment opportunities of particular names. So I agree with the general point. I think investors need to be wary about too much liquidity in the system, but I think there's certainly lots of great opportunities. And to the point around management, I couldn't agree more. Management is amongst the very most important uh, criteria that we look at when we make our investment decisions. And I think there's a bit of an asymmetry in our sector. Number one, I don't think large pharma, large biopharma necessarily develops great management for the startup biotech and early stage medical device industry. And I also think that there is a selection bias because when a company succeeds, often there's great reward to the managers of that company. And they therefore are in a position to not need to work much longer. If a company fails, there's too much blame placed on the senior management when it may not necessarily be that senior management's fault. And in fact, you could identify great managers that could come and lead new projects that have learned from the scars that they've experienced from a failed biopharma or medical technology company. Uh, but I think we need to develop the next generation of managers. And I think we need to enable some of these managers to fail, but come back and learn from their failings to lead good companies. So one thing that's interesting, your fund obviously invests in, in companies that are inventing new drugs, but some of your investments have been in those that are either repurposing, underutilized, or even forgotten drugs that are found on the shelves of big pharma. What attracts you to companies like this, and, and are you looking to do more of that kind of investment? We call it our Spinco Nuco, or spinning out uh, assets a company and creating a new company. Uh, and it is an area that we find very attractive, and it is an area that we will continue to focus on. And I think the reason for that is, is there's lots of great assets out there. And the large pharma companies, biopharma companies, medical device companies do a great job in identifying and nurturing early stage assets. And they don't cut corners, but they oftentimes don't have the bandwidth, senior management bandwidth, to prosecute all the ideas that they have and where they've already created value. And, you know, we have a hypothesis, and it's not alone to us, others have it as well, that if you could identify some of these underappreciated assets that are sitting in larger companies and bring more attention to them and focus capital to them and identify a management team that could continue to bring and create value to these assets along, that you can untap significant value. And we oftentimes find the opportunities here when we can work with the parent larger pharma, biopharma 
company to to get their uh, buy-in as well and their collaboration. And it really has yeah, it has proven to be successful. You know, one thing I'm wondering about is you're mentioning all of this capital flowing into the space. I wonder, you know, your experience sort of looking back o- over the, the history of biotech and investing, is there a linear relationship, sort of this direct correlation between more funding means more innovation? Or is there something about times when there's scarcity that really forces people to think differently? Or I mean, how do you look at, at that relationship? I think both can be right there. A yeah, winemaker gave me a great line uh, that I've repeated often in the bio, in the life sciences sector, which is stress the vines to create great wines. Uh, that line, I think, is impactful. It's it's in times when when the vines are stressed out or competing for resources that you get really special wines. And I think the same can be said for the capital markets in life sciences, where when the capital markets are tighter, it's the better ideas that can sometimes find the capital and find the attention of the great investors and the great management teams. And sometimes, yeah, I, I do think um, you can see better uh, development of drugs and medical devices in those times. At the same time, though, I think that I can say that what is going on now is that there are a lot of great ideas. Innovation is really been successful in the last decade. And the technology that we've been developing as a community over the last two decades is now really turning itself into helping us create, you know, tangible therapeutics and diagnostics and vaccines and all the sort for patients with unmet medical need. So I do think there's a good reason why there's been more liquidity and, and more interest that's come into this sector. You've also joined the SPAC trend. Your fund SPAC, a blank check company called BCLS Acquisition Corp, recently raised $125 million in its own IPO. So how is the hunt for a merger partner going? Yeah, well, I would say that that is early. So I don't have any specific uh, update for you on the hunt for a for what our despacking target will be. We did, we did get into the SPAC game. And, and I would say our rationale for doing so was less as a, as a business opportunity for us as an investor. We more see it as an additional tool to doing the type of investing that we want to do. So in terms of what we're looking for, we are definitely open for business. We're looking at a lot of opportunities. Uh, and we're looking for companies that need both crossover capital and IPO capital and probably need scale capital to execute on a platform of ideas uh, where scale capital in a short period of time could really be helpful. So we are in the hunt. We definitely have seen an, a couple of great ideas, but I don't think we are close to a specific uh, idea yet. So we are in the waning days of the year, which is the natural time to make predictions about the year ahead. So beyond what we've talked about in terms of you know, funding trends and, and a few other things. What's in your crystal ball for 2021? From an investor perspective, and, you know, I feel badly saying this almost, but we, we pretty much haven't missed a beat through COVID. I mean, we have been able to interact with our colleagues, with companies, with other investors, with the sell side, um, with the media, through Zoom and other like uh, technologies. It's in some ways even been more efficient and more effective uh, to learn about as much new technology and innovation and where the markets are moving than it has been before. And I think that's good in some ways. I think this may be partially the new normal. I think the way we conduct our business as investors may be fundamentally changed. And I think we'll see that uh, hopefully in May, June, July, as we come away from COVID, but see how uh, professionally we interact. In terms of the markets, I still am optimistic. I still feel as if there's true fundamental value to be gained. And I think we're going to see a lot more names come up in the next six months that maybe none of us on this on this chat have heard about yet. Any black swan predictions for 2021, as if anything could be a bigger black swan than what we are currently in. Uh, and we'll have you back on the show if they come true. 
Yeah, the only thing I do worry about does does have to do actually with COVID vaccine. I am incredibly impressed with the COVID vaccine and the data that we've seen to date. But I worry that maybe, you know, too much optimism has now been placed on these vaccines or too much hope has been placed on these vaccines. But we have to remember people that have studied vaccines over decades know that there's iterations on vaccines and not everything is perfect. So the only black swan, I think, is if these great solutions come out, they don't get well communicated or well utilized. There is going to be a subset of people that don't respond well. And I hope that these don't get taken out of context to actually, you know, create fear and set us back instead of uh, helping us come forward. Adam, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It feels like months since we've done a lightning round on this podcast, and perhaps even longer since we've spent a considerable amount of time talking about things that are not COVID-19. So to check both of those boxes, uh, we've got a couple of things we wanted to update you on. Adam, how are you going to spend your weekend? Damien, I will be spending my weekend covering the American Society of Hematology annual meeting. Of course, it's virtual this year, like all medical conferences. Um, and this is you know, the biggest medical meeting that's related to blood cancer and blood-related diseases. And I think probably top of mind this year is going to be an update on the CRISPR-based genome editing approach to potentially curing sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia. This is a treatment that's being developed by Vertex Pharmaceuticals and CRISPR Therapeutics. Uh, it's the plenary session at the ASH meeting, so it's getting a lot of attention. Um, and we've seen already seen some really encouraging results from this trial, just a handful of patients, and we're going to get more patients, longer follow-up, uh, and it's, you know, obviously it's a it's a one and done type of a treatment that's potentially curative for this, you know, really two pretty devastating diseases. So, Damien, what's on the top of your non-COVID radar this week? I really like this sort of show and tell uh, format that we've introduced. But <laughs> <laughs> one thing that got my attention earlier this week is that an underrated facet of maybe biology is that it's really, really difficult to precisely define the shape of proteins in the body. So to that point, every two years, there's a contest in which labs and companies around the world are invited to compete to best one another at looking at a group of amino acids and using whatever means they have at their disposal, predicting the proteins that will result from them. And that contest took place quite recently. And pretty fascinatingly, a company called DeepMind, or rather it's a unit of the parent company of Google, which is Alphabet, entered the contest and using an artificial intelligence uh, augmented method of doing this, basically blew everyone out of the water. And, you know, a lot of scientists who've been going to this and judging this contest for many years were saying things like, it seems like we have solved the protein folding problem, which is to say that things that used to take months or sometimes even years to sort out via traditional methods could be done in even hours, if not just days, by this new technology. And we always try to balance the hype cycle when it comes to artificial intelligence. This is an incredible advancement in this one facet of biology. It doesn't mean that now we can just dial up a drug from a computer algorithm. But a bunch of normally pretty conservative people all said this is a remarkable thing and it could accelerate drug discovery in the future because the faster you can see the shape of a given protein, the easier you can home in on the points that might be attackable by drugs if that protein plays a role in disease. And this could actually accelerate the process of finding medicines. All right, Meg, it's your turn. So the thing that caught my eye this week um, is actually a study uh, about restoring sight in mice. Um, this was uh, a piece that I read about in Science Magazine, and it was based on a, a paper published this week in Nature. And it's really 
Cool. Um, so scientists essentially reprogram the neurons in uh, the eyes of mice um, to be able to allow them to regrow after an injury, essentially like a, a gene therapy-like approach to try to deliver this sort of reprogramming to the eyes to make the neurons act more like uh, the eyes of a younger mouse. Um, and so obviously this is in mice, um, which is just sort of a joke on Twitter. There's that whole Twitter account that just says in mice when there is new research. But um, it, it's a really cool idea. Uh, using sort of the same technology that was used to reprogram adult cells into uh, pluripotent stem cells. It's the same approach to try to do this to restore vision. And um, it just looked really cool to me and probably looks really cool to the mice that now have their vision back. That does it for another episode of the Read Out Loud. Uh, one programming note, next week's episode is going to publish on Friday, December 11th. And we're doing that so that we can provide full coverage of the FDA advisory panel that will be reviewing the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine. Thank you to Hyacinth Ebonado, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what the coolest non-COVID thing you heard about was this week. You can do all of that by sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. 